Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Yo, people, Anna David with After Party Pod. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, a website determined to change the face and get rid of the stigma around addiction and recovery. Now, After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest resource for treatment centers across the globe. You can go there to see if your rehab stay could be free. Go to RehabReviews.com slash benefits dash check. What else can you do there, you may ask? You can get a Recover Girl t-shirt. Just go to RehabReviews.com slash after dash party slash shop. Anyway, you'd know all of this if you were signed up for our newsletter. What are you doing? Go sign up. RehabReviews.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Now here's the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturdays. Hey, it's Anna David. Uh, after Party Pod podcast, podcast about addiction, recovery, um, you know, stuff, stuff. It's a great intro so far. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're not new, this is a great episode. I might say it even if it wasn't, but it happens to be true. We'll get into that in a second. I have no new emails to talk about, which is to say, where are they? I don't know. It's fine. You don't need to email me. It is nice. You know what? I don't think I ever say how you can email me. So, which it, which means that anyone who has, has, has done some research. So why don't I make this easier? You can just email me at Anna at the after party group. Also Anna at AnnaDavid.com, obviously. Um, and yeah, requests for the show. Oh, 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 I did get a, uh, a suggestion for a guest. Uh, thank you. Thank you to the person who suggested that. Um, it is a guest who's in Canada, so I don't know that it's going to happen, but, um, God, I'm looking for the, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the email. Um, a guy named Joe C who's written, uh, a meditation book called, uh, agnostics, atheists, free thinkers. Uh, no, it's called beyond belief. It sounds great. I, you know, what, what the, this person suggested is that I, um, is that I do it over Skype and I just have this thing and I, I don't, I don't want to do it over Skype. I, I really, really want to do these in person. Did I tell you I'm going to New York and I, ugh, did I secure some good guests? Two people that I've long wanted on the podcast that I thought would never say yes and they both wrote right back saying yes. So I don't want to say who it is because what if they bail? What if that yes was just, sure, she'll never email me again. Um, but, but we'll see. It was terribly exciting. So that's going to happen soon. I'm actually going on a bunch of trips. I've been having LA cabin fever. I feel like I've barely left. Um, I did go last week to like Arrowhead with Tracy Chabala, After Party uh, Magazine regular contributor Tracy Chabala. God, that was nice. I had not uh, swum, sorry, swam in a lake since camp. And God, that feels good. I, don't, I have nothing else to say about that except that it was fantastic. And I got an amazing foot massage there. It's sort of this hippie town that's awesome and beautiful. So, and and I'm going to Joshua Tree this weekend. Uh, So we'll see. Uh, Maybe I'll talk about what happens there. Maybe I won't. And then I'm going to New York and D.C. And then, yeah, whatever. Uh, And then I'm going to Esalen with my mother, which for her birthday, which is really exciting. God, this sounds really obnoxious, but, but, but it's also because I have been trapped in an office working for so long. So things are, things are very good. I hope everything is 
great with you guys. Uh, let's talk about today's guest. A guy I have long wanted on this, and for some reason, I know him, and for some reason, I thought he would say no, and then I ran into him at a barbecue, and he said yes. And he is such a fantastic writer. Uh, John Albert is his name, and he, sorry about the the texting coming in, um, he, I met him because he wrote an essay for a book that I put together about, I think about five years ago, and it was about reality TV, and he wrote an essay on Sober House that is absolutely hilarious, and, and I, I don't tend to reread anything that uh, involves me, but I yesterday before he came in, I reread that, that essay, and it is laugh out loud hysterical, which is not easy when you're talking about addiction and recovery as, as my writers can attest, but, but it's, it's fantastic. He's sober 30 years. He looks 30. So that's weird, but he got sober at 21 and, um, he wrote a book. Okay. So he was a musician guy. He's very modest about it. He, he, whatever he played in bad religion. We'll get into that. I mean, you're going to hear all of this. So why tell you now? Uh, but he sort of accidentally became a writer and is is incredibly talented and wrote a book called The Wrecking Crew, uh, which has been optioned, I, I think, several million times. And that's an exaggeration, but it's a uh, it's a book about after he got sober from heroin, um, talking about this this. Uh, amateur baseball team made up of, of, you know, sort of the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles and, uh, and fantastic guy. So that's about all I'm going to tell you. You're going to have to hear the rest for yourself. You guys, here's John Albert. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Thank you for coming in. Sorry about the the <laughs> exposure to my, um, you know, character defects of of uh, frustration. Oh. No, I don't. Uh, I don't have those, but I, I'm accepting of them in other people. You've heard of character defects. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're sober a long time, so you have had a lot of time to work on yours, which is why they're all gone, right? Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't know why it doesn't work that way, but it, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't. It doesn't. No. Wait, but how long are you sober? Since I have to add it up, twelve, fourteen, eighty-five. Jesus Christ. Well, I can't do math. What does that mean? It's like almost 30 years. That is crazy. And given the fact that you're 35. Yes, no. It's, it's really amazing. crazy. I was a, a really, really bad baby. So. <laughs> Never slept. Right. <laughs> Colicky for chemical reasons. Um, it's it's so bizarre when I think about it. Um, I mean, you have to understand that like when I was using drugs crack didn't even exist I, I say that with a certain sadness but. right right i say that about well i say like quaaludes were gone mm. there was no oh i think i got so well, i certainly got sober before um people were talking a lot about like oxycontin right nobody was taught so what year did you get sober? i'm t- uh, class of 2000 oh right 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 so, so yeah Quaaludes were definitely gone. That I, I feel a bit of sympathy right. for you on that. Well, quaaludes were apparently like the most amazing things ever. You know, I mean, yeah, they definitely were. I mean, to be a teenager, like they would come into town sometimes, and because they weren't, they weren't like there weren't a lot of them, and but certain bands would come into town and bring quaaludes, and it was more unspeakable exciting. Unspeakable things would happen. Really? Oh yeah. Like, I know people, I run into people now, and I'm just like, oh, I remember that. Like, but heroin was your thing. Yes. So, you, so is it just that the quaaludes weren't as available, or did you like heroin well, more? Well, you don't get, I don't think anybody does quaaludes, like, or when they existed all the time. Um, I did heroin, but if something else was available, or if heroin wasn't around and we were desperate, we would do whatever. You right. Know, I lived in houses filled with people, and so it was a... I was a social addict. So, yeah, I feel like um, 
you lived in those sort of like legendary drug houses around Hollywood where it was just like debauchery. I feel like this just because I was just reading um, like various things about you this morning and, um, you know, and it was sort of like the bad religion thing happened because you were just like in some house. Well, they were friends, but yeah, it's interesting. They were just friends of mine and they needed a drummer and I had a drum set. Like I didn't, I couldn't really play, but they were like, oh, we're friends. You, And then they, I remember they gave me their record and said like, we're going to go play some shows in a month. And so I just played and played and played and played. And, and but you will admit, despite your humility right mm-hmm. now, yes. that you got good enough to play. Oh with yeah, them? I, I mean, I would say by the time I stopped playing drums, because um, I ended up having to be court committed into a rehab, um, I was a good drummer by then. Mm-hmm. But I learned sort of in public, which was uncomfortable, being sort of a narcissist and... You Wanting know, to be perfect. Right. Like, I remember I played the Olympic Auditorium, and we were like, I don't know if we were the headliner or co-headliner, and it was like a couple thousand people, and we played a great show. And and I remember, like, going backstage, and, and I had invited four people, and they didn't show up. And it turned out they didn't show up because they couldn't get in. And I remember going back and thinking, like, I have no friends. And I just played this whole show, and it right. went really well. So... None, none of that sort of overcomes like your internal stuff. Right. right. Um, but I was never like a serious musician. I was just a person that hung around the scene and um, played in some bands. Like I never thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life, you know. But why did you have a drum set? Well, I had a drum set because I lived in a house full of people that played guitar. And we would get high and play old Stooges songs. And, and I figured I, if I played guitar, I could play a little guitar, it was not good, then I wouldn't be a part of things. I mean, I, wouldn't, I would just be on the sideline, but nobody played drums, so I got a drum set, and I could play drums okay. So I just played drums. I mean, it was a casual drummer. But when you got sober, did you never play again? Um, I didn't. I played a little bit. When in like one project, but not seriously. I never played seriously again. Um, I'm not sure why. I mean, it just didn't seem like I sort of, it just wasn't what I was going to do. And for a while after getting sober, I what didn't go back to my old life. I mean, like everyone sort of, there's this idea, I think, that you can go to rehab for 30 days and and then go back to your old life, but just not use drugs and that wasn't my experience um i was in uh, a recovery house for 18 months then i went and i lived with a bunch of middle-aged ex-convicts out in the san Gabriel valley for another year as in like sober living it wasn't sober living it was an apartment complex that sort of people from this recovery house would share apartments so it was somewhat like sober living and did sober living not really exist back in your era? Uh, I think it did, maybe. But it was a little called bit. like halfway housing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the booming business that it is now. Yeah. Do you uh, want to open a sober living with me? Because that's the business to be in. Well, I have a garage. If you get some army cots and like <laughs> seriously, I think we can charge like five grand a month. It's amazing because I remember working in a rehab, and there were people who had sixty days, maybe that were opening sober livings. It was, I mean, it was just, it was like the same thing as selling water filters or, you know, some sort of like, you know, any kind of pyramid scheme or, I mean, it was just a quick money thing. But some of them are amazing and great. Um, But it does seem like, yeah, anyone with a garage is, is doing that right now. Well, I think, I mean, I know that, I mean, one of the interesting things is I worked in, recovery in this sort of time when it was extremely unregulated. I don't know if it is now, but in the late 80s, sort of San Fernando Valley, you know, stars, like heavy metal people, like, you know, all that, like Motley Crue, you know, I worked at that place. What what place was it? It was called Van Nuys Hospital at the time. It was... um, what was the, they had a weird name, ASAP was the company. They weren't people in recovery that started it. It was like a 
army psychologist or something that started this whole thing, and they would have these late night conversations, uh, late night commercials that would say like, "We know how you got here. We know we can get you back." And but it was just strictly for profit. And they had a contract with the NBA, and they had all the sort of hairband people in there. And so, so okay, let, let's go back a tiny bit. I mean, to are you from LA? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Claremont, which is like thirty miles mm-hmm. um, east of here. It's a college town. My dad was a professor, tenured professor. My mom also a professor. What were they professors? Well, of? my mom was a clinical social worker. She taught at USC in Loma Linda. My dad was taught at one college his whole life, and um, he was a, a research psychologist. And do you have siblings? I have a brother, yes. And um, did you go to school where they taught? I, I went, well, I went to my dad's college for less than a year because mm-hmm. it was available. At the time, there was a deal where, like, I could go. Yeah. Which was a bad idea because I was on methadone and um, I was kind of a wreck. And that doesn't go with college very well. Well, maybe for some people it did, but it, it, was, it was more embarrassing because my dad taught there. So he had to be aware of the fact that I was like, you know, in a class with my head on the desk, you know, snoring. Drilling. And yeah. What? Um, and is there alcoholism in your family? Mm. My mom's mom had alcoholism, died of stomach cancer, probably maybe related to it. There's definitely a, a lot of neuroses and weirdness, you know. Like I mental mean, illness? No, no, I wouldn't go far as to say mental illness, but I mean, my dad had an interesting story. He was, his mom died in childbirth. His father blamed him. His father put mm-hmm. him in an orphanage. And he lived in an orphanage for a while. Then his dad came and got him, and they like moved to Hollywood. And he was a traveling sort of, I don't know what, salesman or you know, starting failing businesses all the time. And they just moved around. And he never really forgave my dad for something that wasn't his fault, obviously. Mm. So my dad was had a his own stuff. I mean, he was clinically depressed. Um, my mom grew up with an alcoholic mother, so there was that. There were that those things were around, but it wasn't. You know, neither my mom nor my dad or any of their siblings were alcoholics or addicts. You know, my mom maybe. I mean, we. I talk to my mom all the time about she likes to drink a lot of wine. Yeah, but she's eighty years old, so. Let and it seems it. to have managed her life right. Fine. It's not like, yeah, she's not ruining her future right now by drinking wine. Right. Do you, and you must have started pretty young for you to manage to be already on methadone by college. Oh, yeah. I, I think I started using heroin the first time, somewhere around 15, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was strange because I was, you know, m- my friends and I wanted to be old and jaded when we were really young which doesn't make any sense now that i'm no, old i'm but like I get what it. was i doing I um so i we we had a band which was this sort of death rock band which kept going and became famous long after i was gone called christian death and my friend roger who had a number of names and then ended up being called Roz and who hung himself some years ago mm. um who was really talented and brilliant, but we just wanted to be, you know, we didn't want to be from the Southern California suburbs. We wanted to be from somewhere that sort of was rainy and where we were sort of decadent and jaded, as I said. And I don't Portland, know. is that where you wanted to be from? No, I think Berlin, maybe. Okay. Portland was not like that back then. But so we just... You know, our, we were listening to all that cliche music, Lou Reed, and think you know. I mean, we were huge David Bowie fans, and that was, and especially like David Bowie when he was in Berlin. And there was a lot. You know, we were already doing drugs. I'd started smoking pot as a child and doing hallucinations. As a child? Yeah, I think you know. I mean, it was the, sort of the seventies, and there was a you know, it was just like part of growing up was like 
Smoking pot and skateboarding and things like that. I mean, it was just... And your friends just had it. Like 10, 11? By, certainly by 11. Um, Look at 11-year-olds today. Does that I know. freak you out? It totally freaks me out um, because they're children. They're babies. Right. But but the, there's a difference. Like, I don't... See, you know, like, when I was growing up, we would just roam the streets. And it wasn't that my parents were apathetic. Like, you know, it was like, just come home for dinner. Yeah. And we would, like, you know just go off with our skateboards and smoke weed and skate and listen to like music you know did you have you seen diary of an american teenager Mm-mm. it's a great movie out no. now shout out to that movie um but it's a 1976 girl growing up in in the hate oh right, um, right. and yeah i mean and it it made me realize because she was actually older it, than i was at that which is super fun to say because i never get to say that um <laughs> And it made me realize, like, I'm really glad because I was actually lived in the hate my first oh, two years wow. of life. Yeah. Um, I was I was really glad my parents were as uncool as they are, yeah. and that it wasn't, you know, ten years, five years earlier because um, it's crazy. But the, I mean, it's interesting because I know a lot of kids that grew up in that from who were the sort of children of the hippies. Yeah. And um, my parents were not that. They, my dad was a professor of the hippies, I guess. Um, right. But those kids are, there's some severe damage. Like, you know, the kids, I mean, some of them are really right wing. Some of them, a lot of them were drug addicts. So damaged in yeah. that way by being right wing. Right. That's, <laughs> that's worse the, than becoming a drug right, addict. Right, worse than that. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, those kids were, there was some serious neglect. I know kids that grew up in communes and all of that. Um, yeah, I. Um, what was interesting to me about seeing that movie is that I was such an innocent at that age, and and it's sort of it, my sort of uh, you know going down happened later. Right. From like twelve to sixteen, I was a total innocent. Wow. Um, yeah. Just yeah. And I remember the, uh, a friend telling me. I guess I was probably thirteen. A friend telling me she went on a camping trip and she smoked a cigarette several cigarettes and made out with some guy and I, I remember writing a journal entry I was so freaked uh, out um, but see like I was before even drugs like I was addicted to getting in trouble really so and this this becomes really sort of like primitive and you know it was like shoplifting candy mm-hmm. and then it was like things and this just doesn't, makes no sense but like just acts of awful vandalism like you know throwing rocks at cars and and, that's so frightening you know things like that because the the adrenaline rush like when the car would stop and like and i wasn't alone so i you know i mean it wasn't like i had this like mental illness that i suffered in isolation like all my friends were doing the same thing (laughs) i just read this book about psychopaths called the psychopath yeah i've read it oh god he's so funny right i don't i'm not a psychopath but he does talk about like how as a kid you did well it was mostly like torturing animals yeah i never tortured animals and i i never even came close i mean i love animals but torturing adults right you know and <laughs> that's not on the list yeah like and i got pulled out of elementary school by the police twice you know for stuff like throwing rocks. well one was we had uh a friend of ours went to mexico and we had him bring back fire like fire not fireworks but like M- m80s and m200s and switchblades and things like that Jesus. and the other, this is great. So the kindergartners out of my elementary school had a vegetable garden, and so we planted pot plants in, like, within their vegetable garden, oh my so that they would nurture our plants. And we got somebody told on us for that. That's um, an amazing idea, though. Yeah, it was good. They were. Did nice. you ever get get the pot, or you got in trouble? No, before? both times they got the pot, or somebody got the pot, and then the police came and used all our firecrackers in a anti-firecrackers demonstration <laughs> for the school. So we got to watch them explode, but it was a... Not the way you'd intend no, it. No, no. But the thing was, like, we were just into getting into trouble. And I don't know what that was, mm-hmm. you know. And so drugs, it wasn't like, you know, somebody said, like, do you want to smoke pot? And I thought, no, I shouldn't do that. It was right. like, this is... there's There was an excitement about it, you know. I know very few people who 
who thought, no, I shouldn't do that. I mean, I know I just was saying I was so freaked out by my friend, but by the time it came along and was offered to me anything, I never thought right. I shouldn't do that. Right. I just thought that those warnings don't apply to me. Right. Or I never thought of the warnings. Yeah, I mean, and with, with heroin, it's a, you know, you've heard your whole life that this is like a bad thing, but then people that you really respect are doing it um, both you know, musicians and artists and writers, and then older people I knew were doing it as well. Like, in even in the neighborhood I grew up with, which was just a college town, there were older kids doing it, and I knew them. And um, and then when I did it, it, it just fixed me like nothing else. How? You know, it's what is it like? It's like like you know that cliche Tom Cruise "You complete me" thing. It was like mm. it just fixed me in a way that like I felt like a normal person. Um, it made me okay wherever I was. You know, I'm, I mean, I remember just doing it and thinking, "This is it." Like there was something there, you know. Um, and right away, I just wanted more. Had you been conscious up until that point of being uncomfortable, or until you felt that you didn't realize? Well, as an at, like, I mean, I was starting, that was like sort of early teen years. I was not a happy teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was at war with my family. I was at war with the, my school. I was, I got thrown out of school for truancy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I didn't, like, I wasn't, sort of fitting in in the world and I didn't have an idea of where I was going and um, you know there was a lot of emotional turbulence mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. Um, you know a lot of it came out as anger um, and defiance but I knew I wasn't happy mm-hmm. you know I don't look back on my teen years and think god those were such great years like, I mean, but who does well some people do I, mean, I look back on my college years and think that all the time right which is weird. Well, but that's cool because that's more something you do. Like, that's your life. Yeah. When you're a teenager, you're sort of like still half child. and It's awful. Yeah. Well, and so, and so did you, the first time you did heroin, you shot it. You didn't like... No, I shot it. Well, I remember the first time, the first time I shot heroin, I think, was uh, someone who's around still, is who's a fairly renowned performance artist, Ron Athey, mm-hmm. um, who got in trouble with Jesse Helms and all those people. Um, he was there, and he was living with my friend Roz in this sort of building in South Pomona, which is a ghetto. And I was down there, and they were just doing it. And I remember just literally sticking my arm out, and they shot me up, and I, I think I threw up and then I was like this is really good mm-hmm. and I, I don't think I ever snorted heroin in my life you know because I like the fic I like the immediacy of shooting drugs mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. which you know then led to all sorts of other stuff you know I mean I'm, shooting drugs has its own baggage for sure <laughs> well understatement of the yeah. podcast with many understatements what um and how many years were you an active heroin addict? Well, if I did it at 15, I by 16, I was probably doing it regularly. Um, and then by 21, was done. Yeah. By not, but done because of legality. It's not, you know. Well, so, and so, as I told you, I reread. So you wrote a story uh, called the after party, which I, we, we already clarified before we started recording. I did not plagiarize your title no, no. with the it was name your of the site. And the reason it was my title is that when I wrote Party Girl, my first book, my agent said, "Oh, we can't sell it under this title because there's another book called right. pa- after Party Girl." And her then boyfriend, now husband, who I just want to name drop because um, I Please. like to do that, um, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who like became. The he's like the main financial reporter for the times right. and he wrote too big to fail and this is like so he said why don't they call it after why doesn't she call it after party which makes sense and we did when we sold it and then 
didn't matter until we changed it back to Party Girl. And so when you wrote your story, I had that title well, in my head. It works also for that. I mean, it yeah. works for that story because it's sort of like what happens after the party. Right. right. Well, exactly. But it's a great time. So, so okay. And so you wrote, um, well, and I was thinking about this. I was reminiscing about our relationship um, this morning when, so so Mark Ebner, previous podcast mm-hmm. guest, Mark Ebner, um, and he talked about this when he was on the podcast, so it's totally fine. He was going to write a story about, I think, about Sober House. Right. And he started to get really flaky and weird. And now he told me it was because he had started smoking pot then. And so he didn't feel that he was an appropriate person <laughs> to write that to write that essay. And he recommended you. And um, and I'm not just blowing smoke, but but it is truly one of my favorite essays from the book. And I was just telling you, there's a girl oh, who, who constantly tells me it was her favorite. And it's so funny um and let's talk about that that story so are you still a reality tv addict no i don't watch any reality tv anymore because it just like i could literally feel my brain sort of being destroyed as i watched it and you know i mean i will say i get addicted to a lot of things um food like different foods like Mm -hmm. if i eat a food and i have a good experience like if i'm eating you know, a corn dog and watching the Dodgers play and they win and I have a great evening, I will then eat corn dogs and watch the Dodgers, you know, even if they go on a losing streak and I get like really bad, like acid reflex, I'll watch it. I'll do the same thing until it's just intolerable. Do, and it, and it does the food always have to connect to an experience? Well, I'm just saying like whatever the experience that brings me pleasure, right. I will follow it. So, I use like reality TV was like I think most people I watched it for a, a, some weird reasons and but it stopped working right and I just felt too bad and reality TV is is sort of went from being voyeuristic and entertaining and kind of creepy to like really awful i mean it did it did it uh, I had the same experience. by the way I should clarify that what that so it was for a book called Reality Matters, yes. which anyone listening should obviously go buy immediately. For sure, yes. Um, and it was a book about reality TV where right. I got far better known writers than me to write essays about reality TV. Yeah. And the reason I did that is I too was obsessed with reality TV. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that I, I got sober and I remember the night I, I, I bottomed out, which was watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills oh, yeah, yeah. And, and waking up the next morning and feeling soul sick. And I haven't had TV in so long. And what's so weird is this is so embarrassing. Last night, people were like tweeting about the VH1 Awards. And today, I called and got cable. Oh, no. So I might be going. This could be the beginning of a relapse. Oh, boy. But, but yeah, I... Um, so, okay, so Sober House, you watch. We've had a, a couple Sober House people on this podcast yeah. Jennifer Jimenez and I'm sure some others Mackenzie Phillips I can't remember if she was on it but but oh, Amber Smith um who you reference it anyway so so you wrote this story about Sober House and in it uh you went and confronted I don't know how well you remember this I don't remember what I wrote yesterday but um <laughs> but you you reached out to David Weintraub yeah, I was watching the show, and what the, the really strange part was they were still filming the show. Right. So, and I somehow reached out to him and ended up having lunch and this really bizarre discussion with them while the show was unresolved. Right. And, and I thought he was, I don't know what he's doing now, but... I, we, thought, I know, it made me want to look him up rereading that essay. But they were... There, I mean, that was, they were very strange. And yeah. he was very, he was the villain of that season. Right. And so he was, for anyone who doesn't remember, didn't watch. Um, so, so they would have, you know, it was, it was Seth, uh, Binzer mm-hmm. and Mary Carey, the porn star. Yeah. And, um, and oh, Andy Dick and, right. and other people. And it was, it was after celebrity rehab, they would go to sober living and and David managed all of those people. Yes, yes. Well, it got weird because he sort of filled me in on the behind the scenes part, which was that they he was negotiating contracts for all of them, and sometimes they were prolonging their drug use mm. so that it would so that they would go into rehab 
at the opportune time to film the show. That is madness. But it was known, like, you know, without incriminating all the people involved, but let's do that. Well, I also would like to say, look at the source. I mean, David seemed to be not the most honest person. No, but I will say this. I have talked to other people Mm -hmm. in that world who are around that particular scene, and they have confirmed that. So it maybe it didn't happen with everybody, but it definitely happened with some people. And yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I sort of have uh, people who sort of criticize that at that show. I I don't know. It seems unlikely to me, but but I don't, I, I don't you, know. It could be, and I'm not. I listen. I don't have. I don't know. You know, I because I wrote Tom Sizemore's book and so i heard a lot about i mean he was out of, they had to like crawl into some right. drug den to get him on the show right and and throw pizza over a over a fence i mean it was like crazy craziness <laughs> but they certainly weren't encouraging him to use so he, right he i needed no them. i don't think that you know i mean i i'm not i don't think they were encouraging people to use i don't i don't know that it was that direct i i think that Maybe their when they got sober was a secondary factor and they just needed people for the show. I have no idea. I mean, he, you're right. He's not a credible source. Um, but I think that there was, I think the priorities of the people involved might have been. Gotten confused, gotten possibly. Con- yeah, I would say confusion is a euphemism for, I mean, I know there's a lot of, listen, I know a lot of people who are, working who are on those shows that are great people right and are not you know mercenary and care about people and like in a profound way so i'm not saying that everyone is tainted with that um but you know listen the intersection between commerce and recovery is a really really precarious place yeah um I know people that have opened rehabs and their lives have gone completely haywire and they've been seduced by the money and made just obviously questionable decisions and have some have been in the press and some haven't. And so, and I'm not saying that that wouldn't happen to any of us. I mean, who knows? Yeah. um, But it's a dangerous place. I know. I mean, and I, you know, I have some exposure to that doing this. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and some, you know, initial conflict about, oh, this is something around recovery and you're not supposed to take any money for it. And then it's like, well, no, this is a business and it's yeah. not. Um, and, and let's be totally clear. I'm not making enough money that there's right. any seduction to go right. to the dark side. But you're not also, you're not saying that this is a way of Treatment. saving people. Yeah. You know, this is sort of an adjacent entertainment thought thing, you know, I mean, yeah, it's different. Um, yeah. But like, you know, going back to our joking about sober living houses, you know, and people opening those up to make money. There's, as long as I can remember, rehabs have been in trouble for a lot of questionable That's it. I think I thought that was something new since I started paying attention to it. No. So it's always, even in the 80s. Well, when I worked at, at the, you know, Van Nuys Hospital, um, it was, there were three, two or two that I know, two deaths on the facility that they covered up. And there was abuse by a well-known interventionist that, who's now dead that was covered up. Um, right. You know, and this was sort of the premier star recovery place at the time. Were his initials BT? They were. Yeah, okay, I've heard about that. Yeah. Um, and I was privy to that because I was working there at the time. Um, and there was no question about what had happened. Right. Um, so that's always been happening, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. Um I just had no idea. I went through treatment, um, and I had absolutely no idea. And I was one of these people who had just like a really great experience I with it. I think there's and, great treatment out there. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I was someone who was just completely closed off to the idea of 12 step and then sort of felt like I got tricked into it there hmm. because group was a lot like 12 step. Oh, yeah. And I like liked group. And then I got in a druggy buggy and went to, you know, 12 step. And I was like, oh, this is my group. Okay. I love this. Yeah. Um, so you, how many, how many treatment centers did you go through? Hmm. I don't know. Probably like five, maybe. But those were sort of, you know, of those five, some of them were like two weeks, like just detox and sit around and eat yogurt and watch Miami Vice, you know, right. that, so that's not really treatment. Um, I went, you know, the first one I went to as a teenager because I got, you know, I was starting to really get in trouble and I had drained my parents' bank account. And then, there, you know, it was every time I was Stealing really, or they, they were paying for you? No, I had stolen from them. Yeah. I stole. Um, and I was stealing a lot. To, right. You know, as a teenage, you know, heroin addict, that was... Like probably, cars? No, but just stealing from people. Breaking into houses? or uh, Doing a lot of um, serious shoplifting, mm -hmm. stealing mail, stealing checks. I mean, I don't want to get into it too much, but, but I got caught for a lot of it. You got caught and yeah. they would send you to treatment. Did you ever go to jail? Yeah. I mean, what happened was before the internet, and this really dates me, but so there wasn't the internet so that different counties weren't connected. So you would get arrested in one county and then that would be like a case and then you'd get arrested in another county and that would be a case and they wouldn't just connect them all. But then eventually they would. Right. So then it was like, oh, you're in real trouble and you're going to prison. And I'm like, I had friends that were already in prison by then. And right. I didn't want to go to prison. Um, so I went to a recovery house and f to fight my court cases. Mm -hmm. And every time I would, they would take me to court, they would just say, well, come back in another few months. Mm -hmm. And that's why I stayed initially, because I'd stayed and... Then by the time my court cases were resolved, I was like, I, you know, it had worked. Yeah, I in there in your sober house essay, you talk about how you basically like did drugs in like I think four treatment centers and jumped out a window oh, of one yeah. to to escape. And had I, I also crossed over into the um, psych ward for romance twice. You mean hooking up in rehab? Yeah, but not in the rehab. Um, in two different ones, there was, there were neighboring psych wards, which were just like straight up, you know, mental illness. Like, mm -hmm. And so when I was looking for a date, that's where I went. Um, <laughs> I think I hooked up in almost everyone at the time and got high in everyone. The last time I jumped out a window, and then they they drilled the window shut and then I went so I fled down the elevator and through the ER but I was only wearing a, a, a hospital gown hospital gown and it wasn't really secure so I was sort of streaking um, <laughs> how long did you did you escape before they found you well that was the last night then what happened was I went off I convinced a friend to pick me up reluctantly because not a lot of people wanted me around we got high and he we got no we didn't get high i got high he i did his drugs mm -hmm. and my drugs just like in a in an impulsive i just grabbed them all and did them and he was pissed off and i was so he just dumped me off at the hospital and pushed me out of the car mm -hmm. they put me back in my room and the next day some convict with a mustache picked me up and took me to impact house okay and that's where you stayed that's where i stayed and then I did not leave there and um, stayed there for 18 months. And were you surprised? I mean, what happened? When did you decide, you know what, actually I could do this? Well, I stayed, I stayed there for a while because of the court cases. But also, it was, you know, there's a, there's a sort of self-indulgent thing that happens in like real detoxes where that you sort of like there's all this sort of talk about the intellectual aspects of addiction and here we're going to have a seminar on this and a seminar on that we're going to discuss this and that didn't do anything for me because I came from a really intellectual household right so what impact did was you're going to wake up you're going to make your fucking bed you're going to 
wash dishes. You're going to be accountable for every single action. If you if you do anything wrong, there's consequences. And it gave me that sort of classic rite of passage to being an adult, right. which I needed. That's yeah. what I needed. Um, so that model worked for me. Yeah. Way more. You know, I could be the best patient at any rehab because I knew, listen, my dad was a research psychologist. My mom was a clinical social worker. I could talk in group and seem great. Right. And then crawl out a window and have sex with, you know, I'm borderline schizophrenic. <laughs> um, but what I needed was that sort of Marine boot camp 12 step mix. And did you have a moment uh, where you decided, uh, I I want to be sober, or did it just was it such well, a? Well, it wasn't that. It was um, it wasn't ever like oh I don't enjoy the feeling of drugs. It was I you know I always had this idea when I was in my darkest times that I will get a chance for this to be over, and I realized that this was that time, mm -hmm. and I probably wouldn't get another chance. What I didn't. Like, I like the feeling of the drugs, but it made everything eventually worse. Every bit of depression and loneliness and confusion in my life got worse and worse. And, you know, there was that time where, the you know, I could do so many drugs in one sitting and it wouldn't get rid of those feelings. I mean, that actually happened. Um, and I wanted to not feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it couldn't get rid of the loneliness. It couldn't get rid of the fact that I just felt like my life was over, you know, and at that age. And um, so I was, I just felt like I had been saved in a mm -hmm. way. And, and I was so profoundly grateful not to feel those feelings that I was willing to do anything to keep going in that direction. And so I just did whatever they said, you know, whatever they said. Do you miss doing drugs? Not really. I mean, I've had surgeries and I've had painkillers because I've had surgeries before. And it's mildly pleasant, but it's also irritating. Mm -hmm. The reasons that I did drugs don't exist that much anymore. You know, um, I feel more connected to the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not somebody that believes that like alcoholism is one thing and addiction is one thing and that we all feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I kind of reject that. I mean, I know that there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, but the reasons that made that the reasons drugs like heroin and alcohol and all those drugs made sense, regardless of cost, is because of the way I felt. And I just don't feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a lot. That's a number of things. That's growing up, one. That's being in recovery and constantly sort of facing life and learning how to face life in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And having friends, you know, having a life, being connected to the world. Um, in terms of thinking, like I, I think about what you said about how you did this big show and then your friends didn't show up and you thought, well, I have no friends. Mm. Um, and that, I sort of thought, oh, that's alcoholic thinking. Um, you know, that's sort of where the mind, my mind will naturally go. Oh, yeah. It will look for evidence of something that is not true, but it's sort of some intrinsic belief yeah. that I'm trying to validate. Do you, do you believe that that was part of the isolation and that's what you have been able to conquer well, i think that i think that i had i i don't think that i was um like had asperger's or anything like that but maybe elements of that because mm -hmm. i was i don't know it's hard because i was extremely social mm -hmm. and, and had lots of friends and really cool friends but i had a really i an incredible discomfort being around people and a hard time dealing with life and so I thought that I was destined to be alone a lot of the time. And a drug like heroin makes being alone fine. Yeah. You know, like I, I always say, like if I had, you know, my dream back then was a TV set, some heroin, maybe some alcohol and something to eat, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and it didn't involve people at all. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, I don't feel that's my destiny now to be alone, you know? Well, but interesting when you came in this office and you said now, okay, it's all these people working together. Now, how do you not just sit, right. sit and not talk to them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but these are skills that I've just now developed. Like the, the idea that, like I walk around my neighborhood and I know a lot of people and I talk to them. And then sometimes I think like, what happened to me? Like, right. like I sit in the coffee shop <laughs> down the street sometimes and work and I get irritated because people are starting, people I know walk in and start right. conversations. And that is a, just a profound change. Right. You know, even I've had like periods of incredible isolation in recovery. Right. You know, um, sort of self-imposed exiles into my own world. Um, but it's just a lot different. And those are, those are things like that is recovery to me. Like being okay like I can go to a party now and just chit chat and mm-hmm. or not and be fine. Mm-hmm. That's you know, maybe that's just time, but it's also those are skills that I think you learn in recovery or I learned in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was sort of sort of similar. Um I just you know, I I've always kind of needed people around. I mean, except those years I was doing coke alone. Like I, yeah. I, I could, you know, cocaine. It doesn't make you okay being alone, but it makes you not want anyone around, which yeah. is why it was sort of awful. Like the drugs don't work in the end for oh, me. Yeah. But but um, I I think that I used to be so intolerant of people that them like like it it it'll trip me out here in this office that I'm like go have all these friends here yeah. uh, because I used to sort of be like I'll be friends with one or two people that I deem okay cool enough and and that yeah. that's really changed in recovery. Well, I mean, I, there you know there was an article that came out recently and they were talking about the idea and and, and I think it was mainly in Europe, which is that like the way they're dealing with drug addiction is reconnecting people into into society in a like a real sort of profound way like mm-hmm. and i think that that works like i really do i mean i think like listen there's a lot of self discovery and self healing that happens in recovery but there's also this idea that you become part of this community yeah and i think that that is incredibly helpful yes and you know and and there's a reason that people that are in you know poverty do drugs a lot more you know people that don't have a stake in the world and are sort of disconnected um and you know and it's sort of like the catch-22 of like the well the more drugs you do the more disconnected you become so it's this road sort of out of the world but i think when you put people back in the world and connect them they're less likely to do that yeah yeah that's interesting there was this jonah hari this this guy who he did a ted talk and he wrote a book and um and it's all about that but it's interesting because all the criticism of 12 step right now that's sort of uh you know, people get so hung up on the spiritual aspect, which they consider to be the religious aspect, that they overlook that this community is kind of what can make all the difference. Yeah, and that's sort of like, listen, I had a neighbor that was an ex-cult member and who who drank himself to death. Like, he wasn't just a neighbor. We, like, shared a wall. And I watched him drink himself to death, and he could not, he would not go to AA because of the spiritual aspect. Right. Which... Because he had been in a cult and he was damaged by that and he was so scared of that. But listen, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean I'm mean, i an atheist. I'm a total, like, you know, I adhere to science. I don't believe in much spiritualism. I don't believe in astrology. I don't believe in any of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I have a whole bunch of friends that are the same way. Mm-hmm. And we are productive members of, right you know of the 12-step programs and so nobody has ever come to me and said you can't be here that what you're thinking is wrong i think that there's a lot more people than sort of it's talked about that don't believe in all of that and it works fine yeah you know yeah absolutely um do you and and so you don't so what do you credit with the shift what uh what you was it what you said which is basically you felt so much better that 
well it, anything was worth it I, you know it's it's like the result is the same it's just what you're attributing yeah it, the change to like i don't believe in a you know a god that cares whether like i get a job or have a good relationship a bad relationship or any of that i don't believe that i believe the universe is incredibly complex and doesn't you know i'm just a teeny part of it but that doesn't mean that doing the right thing doesn't feel good and feel right. better and that being a good person is without value you know i mean i talk about this with a lot of people i have a friend um i was just had a phone conversation with my friend Greg Graffin, who's the singer for Bad Religion, who's also an evolutionary biologist and teaches at Cornell. And, you know, he's an incredibly moral person, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like we're, that the, you know, having no spiritualism means nihilism, you know. Right, right. Um, I think there's a ton of people, and I only say, listen, I'm not, I'm not critical of anybody's beliefs. I just, I'm sort of public about that because I think there is that sort of mischaracterization that this is a program that's based, you know, maybe at one time it was based on, you know, sort of Christian values or Catholicism, mm -hmm. but you don't need to believe those things to no. get recovery. No, um, I, I did want to talk about how you, um, it almost sounds like randomly became a writer. I mean, that's sort of how it, it how it's built. Well, no, that's, that's what happened. What I went, I went to back to school, I went to film school, um, and I, I wrote some stuff in film school, but those were sort of scripts. And, and then I did what totally made sense, was I got out of this prestigious film school and I went to work for a surfboard company <laughs> and didn't do anything but surf mm -hmm. and um which is sort of self-destructive and then i submitted i had an I, I i just had this story about like i was playing baseball with these guys and i thought oh this is such a weird story and so i submitted it to the la weekly under their best of la under some weird you know so best of like meaning the best team well no it's you know that's sort of like best donuts best right right know. so this was going to be i don't know it didn't really fit but somebody suggested it so I, I sent in like two paragraphs and i thought like maybe this is like your best junkie cross-dressing amateur baseball team <laughs> um and they basically came back and said well this doesn't really fit into the best of would you want to write this as a story i'd written one short piece for a surf magazine um which was sort of an interview profile for a friend's magazine and i i lied and said that i'd written all sorts of yeah. more stuff and so that was my first piece and it ended up being a cover story and it won a national sports writing award and so then i had another career well and it's like the most option story in hollywood <laughs> it, it is which is sort of like a blessing and a curse um it's been options so many times and um come close to being made so many times it's optioned right now um yeah i you know i don't know you know i don't know why it hasn't sort of moved to the next level i mean there's been scripts written people have been paid close to a million dollars to write scripts Jesus. um the last option before this was uh, philip seymour hoffman and that didn't work out for obvious reasons and now it's optioned again um mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I wrote, because what happened was, I so I, the article came out, and then I got this career as a journalist, and then I was literally given a book deal, which probably makes people sick, but I was like, you know, and, and I said, I don't think there's a book here, and they said, just take the money and write the book. Um, it actually makes me more sick that you got at LA in the LA Weekly, because they were, like kept rejecting me. So, sorry, pers yeah. personal side. Go on. But... Um, so, but I wrote the book thinking it was a movie, you know, I mean, I wrote it like a movie and, but it's been hard, I think, to translate tonally into, because right. people write scripts and I read them and I think 
this is okay. Did you ever write one of the scripts? No, I've never done that. The reason being is that at least previously I wanted the option money and I wanted to, and the next step was packaging money. And so if you get the studio together with a writer, then you get more money. And I, I just didn't want to, I needed the money. Yeah. Know? As yeah. I tell people like the book and it's, and it's continual, continually being optioned is, um, is like having a teeny little oil well in your backyard. Right. You just get a little <laughs> check every once in a while. And I never sort of had the time and patience to like do that. Um, and I don't know that I could, you know, I don't know that I would be better than, you know, Rick Cleveland, who wrote for Six Feet Under. Who, right. You know, and he wrote it, you know, he's a great writer. And, you know, and I'll, I don't think that his version got the tone. And he said, I don't know how to do this. I wish you had written your book before because he wrote it off the piece. Um, oh, interesting. But since the book's been written, there's been versions right. done, and I don't know. It's t it's difficult. Yeah, I had with with my first one. Um, w w offers came in, and I was like. I went with the highest paying one. I didn't care if it sounded like the highest yeah. quality one. I just was like, I want money. I get it. And I knew the chances of it getting made were minuscule. Right. Um, and what's what's strange about my situation is is a script was uh, a script by at that point my dream writer it was the woman who wrote Reality Bites, which was right. the seminal movie of the twenties. And um and then you, as will happen, just I never heard from the producers again. They said we're hiring her. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. I never heard from those people again. I emailed them, never heard back. Wow. And then you know the agent contacted me maybe a year later and said, oh by the way, you you the option reverted back to you. Randomly, I wrote something about this, and the writer, the, the screenwriter, got in touch with me and said, "You never saw the script," and she sent it to me. So, oh. so you know, I guess six years after I wrote a book based on my life, I read a screenwriter's version of my book based on my right. life from ten years earlier. It was so strange. And how was the script? It was interesting. It was. It was. I. I can't reread my, anything I write, yeah. so I barely remembered the book. Um, it was, you know, it was interesting. I, at one point, somebody who wanted to, uh, Melanie Griffith wanted to option. She was one of the people who wanted to option right. the book. And she said, I want you to write the script. And I tried and it was god awful. It's hard. I really, I wish that I knew how to do that extremely lucrative form of writing. And I don't. It's, it's really difficult. And especially, I think, when you care so much, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, and then is, there's a whole other thing. If, you know, now when once somebody has spent money on a property, then you anybody involved in that can't ever be involved in it again, or you have to recoup all that money. Oh God! So there's like this built this like increasing like group of people group that of can't people that you can't right. So you know, like it's interesting because you're, you're going to run out of people in Hollywood at some well, point. Two people have died, so the, you know there was another person that optioned that died. So um, wow. I don't know. Maybe we'll see what happens. I mean, I don't think about it as much as I did originally. Yeah. yeah. Because you know, you know, initially I wrote a book or wrote a story, and then it you know it became a it was a studio thing, and it was in the L.A. Times and all that. And I thought, oh, my life is going to change. Yeah. This is going to be great. And then it didn't happen. And now that's happened so many times. I like. I just don't believe it. Even if people like tell me, oh, there's this great news, this has happened, I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I just, I'm pretty jaded now. Question, and this, we do have to wrap up, and yeah. so this is a, just such a brilliant way to end. Yeah. Um, have you, at this point in re your recovery, kind of gotten to the point where you realize that nothing is gonna change overnight? In that like, you, let's say, yeah. you, you walk out of here and there was a call, and it was like, we're actually going into production right now. Yeah. And this belief that we all buy into, that this is gonna be the thing that will bring me everlasting well, happiness right. well that that was a thing see like i even in recovery i lived for years with this idea that this there was some event that was going to happen that was going to change my life right. and make everything okay and i lived in sort of a nervous anticipation of that happening and then i realized that life is just happening in between all those moments yeah and i've had enough friends that have had those moments happen too and their lives don't change right i have friends that have made tons of money, been incredibly successful, lost it all, gained it all back, 
And none of those things have been the really valuable parts of their lives. Right. And I've seen people make a lot of money and be miserable. I've seen people not make money and be happy. So it doesn't matter that much. That said, I would be really happy if that call happened. Right. You know, um, because it would just take off the table whatever anxiety I have about money. But would it? I mean, yes and no. Well, great. You're absolutely right. Like, so I have a friend that just made a bunch of money in music and bought a big house and has this great life and is scared to death because how does he sustain it now? Yeah. Now he has this, all these new responsibilities. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you move out of your apartment, you get a better car, you get this, you know, it's just a big change. And no money, no problem. Right. So, you know, I work sometimes, I, well, not sometimes, I mean, I work at a record company, like, consistently, and, you know, one of the things that, that artists, that they tell artists, or my friend Brett tells artists, he owns the record company, is that, take your money, but don't change your life, because the trajectory is so fast yeah. in both directions, and nobody ever believes them. Right. They don't ever believe them. They think that whatever increase in income they had this year, it will just keep going that way. Right. And I've talked to so many of those people on the way down and they're, you know, they're humble and they laugh about it, but it's inevitable. Right. I mean, so. Yeah, I do think when it's uh, not that dramatic thing, but when people are slowly working their way up, that it's not really that. But I've had, yeah. I've had my, I suddenly was like, oh my God, my income next year is going to be gone because I'm a narcissist and any story right. that has to do with someone else, I immediately am like, stop listening and think about how it, what it has to do with me. But, um, but yeah, I think it's more true when it's like the MC Hammer <laughs> right. story. For sure. And I, you know, then you, you know, I think you become more responsible after a while. And like, you know, if you make money, you think like now I don't think, oh, if I made money, I'd buy like, you know, a great flashy car or anything i think oh i'd invested in like real estate or something right and some people do that but you know like youth is wasted on the young a lot of times fast money is wasted on the young right so right i don't have to worry about that anymore (laughs) (laughs) well i hope if you get it to circle back you'll just open a sober living yeah Maybe. Maybe that's the way to make fast money. It is. It is today. This is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for for coming in. So that was After Party Pod with John Albert, writer, drummer, ex-drummer, former heroin addict, now sober three decades. I hope you loved the episode. I hope you will listen to next week's episode. And um, yeah, review us. Why not? Okay, bye.